The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran hey everybody welcome to the main street vegan program you know i don't plan this it just works out that whenever there are two guests on the program they often have this eerie synchronicity I didn't set out to have two saviors of animals on the program today, nor to have both of them Skyping in from the Southern Hemisphere, but that is precisely what's happening. After the break, we'll be speaking with journalist Jennifer Skiff, who's author of Rescuing Ladybugs, Inspirational Encounters with Animals that Change the World. And first, we're going to be talking with a gentleman in Zimbabwe, and the wildlife you hear in the background <laughs> is actually where he is. How cool is that? I'm Victoria Moran, your host of the Main Street Vegan Program. I'm so, so happy to have you with us today. And this first guest, joined by chirping other beings, is Damien Mander. He is the founder of the International Anti-Poaching Federation. Damien was an Australian national clearance diver special operations sniper and Iraq war veteran. He founded the IAPF in 2009. It is a multinational not-for-profit conservation organization working across Southern and East Africa. Damien's 2013 TEDx talk on speciesism has been seen more than 7 million times. Welcome, Damien Mander. Victoria, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing really well, and I'm so happy to be talking with you because I heard you speak. We met briefly here in New York last year, yeah. and your story and what you're doing, it, it's just, it could take up two shows, and we only have 26 minutes, so let's talk <laughs> fast and get it all in. You are the quintessential anti-stereotype vegan. How'd you do Thank that? Thank you. And, you, and you just called me a gentleman. I've been called a few things before, but I don't remember being called a gentleman. So <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> well, I, when I was getting the instructions uh, for today's talk, it said no swearing. Now, you've got to understand, I read an article in a, in a magazine many years ago, and it said that the, 
the most defensive people in the world. Number one came in as uh, Canadian lumberjacks and number two as Australian sailors, and I am an Australian <laughs> sailor. So I am trying my hardest here to be on my best behaviour. So let's let's do it. I'm counting on you. Okay. So when you were being a sniper and all of those things, did you have the same soft heart underneath? Or maybe it's not about softness. How did you become who you are? Oh, look, I mean, I grew up not uh, – I never cared about animals too much or the environment. Uh, you know, for me it was about, um, you know, I suppose ego is, is, is a – is a big killer for a lot of us. And, you know, I was an ego-driven person that, that was always, you know, I felt as though I had something to prove. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was one of the reasons I went to the military and then not only went to the military and became a, a diver, but then went on to become, you know, a special operations. It was about trying to prove something. And then, you know, when you go through Iraq, you know, I did a dozen tours in Iraq. And, you know, after a dozen tours, you start to see things through a different lens and, Maybe uh, you, you get an opportunity to see, you know, step back and, you know, view life a little bit differently. Uh, and uh, definitely coming to Africa, I mean, I didn't, I didn't join the military to serve my country. I did it for adventure. I didn't go to Iraq to help the situation. I, I did it for money, and I didn't come to Africa looking for a cause. I went looking for a fight. Um, but it was seeing what was happening with animals and the people that were, were risking their life to protect those animals that made me really internally reflect Mm. And uh, yeah, realise there's more to life than, than chasing the next adventure. And hey, I'd made a bunch of money uh, through real estate and by being a mercenary. Um, and I had some skills that could maybe do something constructive uh, for the world. So yeah, look, it's we've all got our own journeys. Uh, you know, I, I can't take back the past, and I'm not going to be trapped by it either. Um, you know, we, we've all got a, you know, we, we've got one shot on Earth. Oh, you, know, you know, nature has a, nature's had billions of years to evolve. We've got a, a simple lifetime, so it's about just continuously moving forward, cutting away the bits that don't work, keeping the bits that do, and uh, and, and and growing. Yeah. So, an, an elephant changed your life. Most of us have not personally known an elephant. What happened? Yeah, I mean, seeing seeing something that that weighs as much as a truck laying there with its face cut off for something you can hold in one hand. Maybe when I was 18, 19, that wouldn't have worried me, but uh, I don't know what it was. It's, uh, yeah, th Things changed. I don't know if it was just getting older or if it was because of the path that I've walked, but things changed. And, uh, you know, seeing an elephant with its face cut off was enough for me to, you know, the, the, the catalyst to start selling off properties. You know, I, I bought my first house uh, at the age of 20. Uh, by the time I'd finished uh, military and in Iraq, I had a, a decent uh, residential um, investment portfolio yeah. and decided to start selling that and, and set up the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. That was almost a decade ago. We're now working throughout southern and East Africa, the ranges we support have uh, uh, helped protect over 5 million acres of wilderness every day. Got the likes of Dr. Jane Goodall as our patron, and uh, registered in, in four different countries and, and driving operations uh, throughout Africa to try and you know, make the world a safer place for wildlife. 
So explain to us, as, as if we're not educated, because I think a lot of us are not, about poaching. When you talked about the elephant with his face cut off, you're talking about the tusks were removed because these are valued in certain parts of the world. Help us understand about elephants and other animals and what poaching is. Yeah, I mean, poaching is the illegal taking of, of, of wild products, whether they're plants, even rocks, uh, animals, and uh you know, in a case over here in Africa, it's, I mean, two of the main species that are targeted in the most aggressive sense and the, and the, the species where my skills and background are relevant, elephant and rhinoceros. So elephants are poached for their tusk, rhinos for their horn. A horn can go for as much as uh, uh, 35000 US dollars a pound and one rhino can have up to 20 or 30 pounds of, of horn on it. So... These are animals that sort of should be locked in a safe, but they're running around out there in, in places the sizes of small countries. So we need to have a range of forces that are trained out there on the front lines willing to risk their life to go out and protect them. Uh, Bushmeat poaching, a huge issue that we face. Uh, people that, that come in on a commercial scale and will set up wire snares. These are wire traps that when an animal walks through, they get caught and they struggle. Animals don't have hands and fingers like we do. They can un- untangle these things and they, they, they suffer a horrific death. It sometimes takes days uh, for them to die before they either dehydrate, suffocate or get eaten alive by predators. So it's a matter of just, uh, you know, when we first came over, it was about training ranges, protecting certain species, the sexy ones, the elephants and the rhinos. And now, almost a decade later, we've evolved into this organisation that is protecting ecosystems. Uh, looking after massive ecosystems where once they're protected, every animal in there. And we're talking, I mean, these ecosystems have millions, if not billions of different creatures in there, all sentient beings. We're just giving them the opportunity to do what they do best, and that's to live uninterrupted from human inter- uh, intervention. So exactly how you do it, how, how do you do it? You're talking about a, a vast amount of area how many people do you have and, and how do you do it? You don't just, I wouldn't think, walk up to a poacher and say, excuse me, that's illegal and unkind, please stop. How does this work? So, you know, initially when we, when we were going over here, uh, I mean, my background is military. It's what I knew and it's what we did when we got over here. We started an organization and became, you know, we we're quite militant in how we went about our operations. And you know what? It worked. Uh, we would go out there and uh, and train the men that we worked with in a in a in a in a fairly aggressive way to go out and defend these areas. They'd be out patrolling and protecting these animals, and if we got signs of poachers coming in, we would track those people down. Uh, one of the programs we're working with now uh, is called Akashinga, which in local dialect trans- translates into the brave ones, and it's a whole new way of of looking at conservation. And this was born from a program that we started in Mozambique along the Kruger National Park border defending up to a third of the world's remaining rhinoceros. Uh, we had helicopters, aeroplanes, 165 personnel, four different government departments, big offences, more guns, and we were essentially at war with the local population. Uh, and we were winning the battle, uh, but we were losing the war overall. And it, it, it forced us to go back and look at how we can do things differently. Around around the time, when was it? It was around the beginning of 2017. I read an article in the New York Times about uh, the U.S. Army pushing females through uh, U.S. Ranger training 
and uh, they were talking about uh, our women going out there on the front lines. Now, you know, I got, I got in a certain sort of sticky situation in northern Baghdad. would have been, what, around 2007, and uh, we got rescued by U.S. Uh, Army Rangers. So I thought if U.S. Army Rangers can be women, then why can't women be rangers out on the front lines in Africa in an industry where women or men outnumber women by about 100 to 1? Uh, we're reading, you know, more and more evidence and, and articles that empowering women is, is, is a force, a big force for positive change in the world today. And I thought, well, if we're in an industry that's had billions of dollars invested in it and we're still not progressing, we're talking about animals going extinct, maybe we've got to try something different. And we set about building up uh, an all-female anti-poaching unit um, that would go out and protect an entire nature reserve. Never been done before. There's, there's, there's no reserve in the world that's entirely managed and protected by women at this stage. And we couldn't find an area to get this going. Uh, we tried and we tried and we tried. And we got closed doors everywhere despite our record, despite the fact we're willing to absorb the the reputational uh, risk and put all the money into getting this program going. Nobody wanted to give it a shot. Uh, I think, um, you know, like I had been, uh, you know, everyone was scared of taking that leap. You know, I mean, I, I come from the ultimate boys club, uh, special operations, and, uh, you know, built a career across you know, three continents, bringing fairly hardened men to the point of breaking uh, and then rebuilding them into what we need on the front lines. Women never featured in the equation. And uh, so for us to go out there and, and say we're going to put women on the front lines, it was, it was a big risk. That's what we perceived anyway. And we looked at, um, looked at multiple areas and we eventually found a, a, a trophy hunting area or an area that had been abandoned because of a, a, the demise of the trophy hunting industry, which takes up excessive land across the continent collectively around the size of texas is set aside for trophy hunting in africa and uh we got to work on there uh, about um recruiting women and, and putting them out there on the front lines and i'm going to tell you that was about 15 months ago and from what we've seen from day one to now has been absolutely uh yeah, a huge change for us in perception of, or me personally, and how, how I perceive operations and how we go about things. But uh, not only how we go about things in, in conservation, but maybe how we can do things on a much broader scale. And how, who is this woman? Just describe her in composite. This, this is a woman who is out there fighting off poachers. Well, and, yeah. and out there with, very large animals. How? Yeah. Give us a day in the life. So, I mean, the program now, this program, we got this particular project has 47 employees, a majority of which are women. Uh, all the women that we have employed uh, survivors of serious sexual assault, domestic violence, AIDS, orphans, single mothers of animal wives. Uh, you know, they were the most marginalised women from these rural communities. And, uh, you know, we thought if we're going to create this program, then, you know, why not give the ones uh, that are doing it the toughest an opportunity? And uh, we put them through selection. And, you know, I mean, I put a, I put a lot of men through selection and we've, we've really drilled them. And, you know, when you put someone through selection, you're trying to break them. 
And, uh, you know, we, when we put these women through selection, we thought we were putting them through hell. Um, the reality is they'd already been through it and survived. And, uh, you know, the, the way that they carry themselves through that selection program, it changed our perception very quickly on, on what we had uh, to work with. About halfway through day one, we knew we had something very special, and that's when we realised it was not up to the women to prove to us that they could do the job. It was up to us to prove to them that we could train them to be able to deploy out there on the front lines. That's just utterly fascinating, and, and I was fortunate enough to see the, a video about uh, the work over there, and it's absolutely stunning, and I'm sure a lot of that is, is at your website, iapf.org. So you have another um, initiative going in uh, Zimbabwe, the Back to Black Roots Vegan Movement. What's that about? Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks for asking. So this is part of the Akashinga program. It's the, um, the food and nutrition component of, uh, of what we're doing in the Lower Zambezi. And this is – so the entire program is, is vegan. Uh, and it's you know, people get involved with conservation generally because they love the animals or love the environment or a combination of the two. And I think the conservation movement should be driving a uh, should be driving a vegan message, but it's not. And veganism within conservation is is, is often laughed at or or, or, or mocked. Uh, and so we thought, you know, we'll. We didn't want to be nine to fivers in how we went about our job out there as part of this program. We, we, we couldn't leave our morals behind at the end of the day. So we explained to the women that the program is vegan, but why we think they should be vegan. And we brought in vegan chefs. Uh, we've trained the, uh, the women from uh, an environmental, an ethical and a nutritional standpoint on how to grow their own food, prepare their own food and speak about it in their local communities. You've got women who are now viewed as rock stars and heroes in these local communities, women that were initially outcast who are now you know, held in such high regards and out there driving a vegan message from the grassroots up uh, in, these, in these communities. And this is something that we really need to be looking more at. There's going to be 2 billion people in Africa by 2040 and... You know, this is this is the, the conversation that's not being had in Africa. Africa is a continent that's largely raised on a plant-based diet. It was a colonial movement over here that pushed meat to the forefront of our, our, our plates. And that's got to change. We need to go back to our roots. And that's what Back to Black Roots is about. It's about going back to looking at indigenous crops, teaching people how to grow their own food, prepare their own food, and not rely on having to have a steak on your plate. Uh, Less people uh, eating meat in and around protected areas means less cattle grazing in these in these communities, uh, which is a huge problem we face in terms of land degradation. Uh, and also, it's going to be less people coming into these areas to poach for bushmeat. And look, any great movement in history, it doesn't start from the top down. It starts from the bottom up, and that's what this is. It's driving a plant-based message in, in rural communities driven by women who now have a powerful voice in these communities through the social engineering that this program has provided. 
Amazing. So you talked about how veganism is often laughed at in the conservation world and, and having been a vegan for a really long time, when I hear the word conservation, you know, I sometimes think, oh, those are the people who only care about part of a picture. That's my judgmentalism yeah. coming out. So what changed it for you? Being honest. That's what changed. I walked around the bush for four years protecting one group of animals and coming home and throwing another group of animals on the, on, on the fire. And uh, I suppressed uh, all the conversations that I was having with myself. And, look, whenever we're questioning ourselves and either, uh, uh, about why we're eating meat or consuming animal product, we come up with some of the most fantastic excuses. At the end of the day, it's crap. I mean, we, we're making up stories to convince ourselves of something that you know has a, absolute no justification uh, other than something that's there to satisfy our taste buds. And eventually, it became too much for me. I didn't. I didn't want to be the person that I was becoming. What I was saying and 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 believing and what I was doing were heading in separate directions, and that. That was unsatisfactory for me. So, yeah, it was, it, by the time the shutters came up, it was a decision that was easily made, and, and since then I've never gone back. Oh, good for you. Now, again, just on the educational front, I have heard from some human rights activists who say that the larger society comes down more on poachers, uh, many of whom are, are just trying to survive, but not so much on wealthy big game hunters. I mean, obviously, I think they all need to go, but can you kind of clarify that for us? So this program that we're doing, Akashinga, one of the main things that we noticed with women is that we haven't seen corruption. Now, historically, with anti-poaching units, when we formed them, we would have to bring men in from around the, around the country to protect these areas, and that's so they're not influenced on the local community that they grew up with. The fact that we haven't seen corruption with women, it means that uh, we're able to employ 100% from the local community. So that turns the biggest line item we have in conservation, which is law enforcement, it turns that into a community investment. So 62 cents from every dollar that we spend operationally goes back into the community. Now, that what we're doing now, bearing in mind that we have taken over a, an area that was previously set aside for trophy hunting, but we're putting the same amount of money into the local community every 34 days is what trophy hunting used to do per annum. So in the employment of women, we've created a viable economic alternative to trophy hunting uh, in an industry that's diminishing and that we need to find an alternative. Uh, now, on top of that, the bottom line, triple gear, is women spend three times more of their salary on household and local community than what men do. And then the fact that, that women seem to... Now, we, with me, when I was in Iraq, counterinsurgency means countering insurgents. We're looking for fights. We, 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 you know, that, that's how we, we're trained to deal with things. Women seem to have a different way of dealing with things. It's, it's a de-escalation. It's a conversation. We're spending about a quarter per acre, per acre per annum in protecting this particular area with women than what we were with men in Mozambique because we don't need helicopters and, and guns and bigger fences and all that. Um, women are having conversations. So it's, it's, it's actually, we, we, we completely re-looked at the way we do conservation. We put female empowerment at the centre of the strategy. That gives us the greatest traction 
uh, in community development and conservation became the byproduct. So you are right. We, 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 we do need to look at poverty uh, and, and how to deal with that. And the best way we can look at community development from everything we've studied it says empowering women is the, is the greatest way to spend a single dollar. So that's what we're doing now with conservation funding is spending on community development in that, in that particular way but at the same time providing an economic alternative to trophy hunting. So we sort of, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a multifaceted solution that we're working with here. Mm, and it shows how everything can be so connected because I guess everything is connected. So just very, very quickly in our last couple of minutes, in, you're looking at the part of the world where you are now in, in Africa and then thinking about all of us out in the West with all of our preconceptions, what do we really need to know about what's going on in that part of the world? Oh, okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a big question. I mean, look, maybe I'm surrounded by people that are too positive or too optimistic or I've got too many friends on social media that, that have a great outlook on things, but I'm positive. Despite all the, the bad things that we see, the forests we're cutting down, the oceans we're poisoning, the sky we're trying to fry, uh, I'm still positive. And I'm positive because there's more and more people doing good things. And it's the same over here on the ground. Uh, you know, bad, bad stories sell newspapers, but when you get over here and you spend time on the ground, there's a, there's a lot of good things happening. It's not just here. I think it's, it's, it's echoing what's happening around the world. Yeah, we've got an uphill battle on our hands, but you know what? more and more people are waking up to the battle that we have. And and there's more and more people that I'm being associated with that, that want to leave something behind. They want to do something for others as opposed to building up something for their personal gain or personal status. And I think that's there's, there's a movement happening here. And, you know, what it, it's great to be on the right side of history. Oh, it is indeed. And how wonderful to talk with someone who absolutely and undeniably is. And you, you've proven karma because you said that you have a lot of positive people on social media. And I think so many people would say, the people in my real world are awfully nice, but put them on social media and that all goes away. So you have even made people uh, positive on Facebook. So that's pretty cool. So do check out the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, IAPF.org, and we will put all of the URLs for, for everything that Damien's wonderful organization is doing on the show notes. And by all means, find his TED Talks. These are incredible. They'll change your life. So Damien, wow. bless thank your you. heart. And thank you so Victoria. much for all you do. No, thank you, mate, for what you do. I know you, you've got an amazing voice for animals and uh, for everything that's right in this world. So thank you very much. Well, it's very easy to have a voice for the animals, and I love just listening. Let's just take a minute and listen to what who you've got behind you. Isn't that nice? I was saying before the show, the only chirping you will hear from me is my rescue pigeon, Thunder. And uh, he's good, too. Everybody stay with us. We'll be back with more after the break. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. If you enjoy the programming, please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Meditation Minute with Paulette Pipe. So as always, we begin our time of meditation by first taking account of what we're feeling, those sights that we're seeing, those sensations that we're experiencing, and each breath that we breathe. Notice where in your body you're experiencing those sensations. Let your breathing find its own rhythm. As we begin the process of letting go, the process of relaxation. Remember why we're here. To hear more from Paulette Pipe and Touching the Stillness, visit the archives section at unityonlineradio.org. Daily Word has developed beautiful card decks to support your spiritual journey. One deck is about healing, another is about finding peace in troubled times, and the family cards are two decks, one for parents and one that can be colored on for children, so families can talk about spiritual principles together. The card decks are available from Unity. Go to unity.org, then click on Shop or call 1-800-24-UNITY Monday through Friday. Did you know Unity has published a new book by Eric Butterworth? This wonderful writer and teacher, who is loved by so many people, left a recorded class called Practical Metaphysics that has now been turned into a book. It's Vintage Butterworth. He explains how to live from a deeper state of consciousness and awaken to health, love, prosperity, and peace of mind. Practical Metaphysics. Find it online by going to unity.org and click shop. If you could talk to an angel, what would you say? Join Jerry Gavin every Monday at 5 p.m. Central for Angelic Connection. Jerry shares messages from his guardian angel, Margaret, in combination with ancient healing practices to teach people how to listen to their spirit. Jerry can help you strengthen your connection to the angelic realm and receive clear messages of help and healing. Call in and join the show every Monday on Unity Online Radio. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. everybody. What a pleasure it is to do this program. I always tell people that I am guaranteed to have three really happy hours in my week. Two of those hours are when I teach yoga here in my building early in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the other one is when I do this program. And I have a lot of other fabulous hours too, but I'm, I'm guaranteed three. And thank you so much for being part of one of those. 
If you are new to the program, I am Victoria Moran, and you can find out more about all of my work at MainStreetVegan.net. There are books and a blog and a new film coming, A Prayer for Compassion. There's an academy that trains vegan lifestyle coaches. And if you like our program, please consider joining our Facebook group, the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Group. And that way you can have more input into what goes on on this program and you can let me know what you like lots and what you like less. And I'm going to be introducing you now to someone you're going to like lots and lots. I can already tell. (laughs) And this is Jennifer Skiff. You may know her from uh, earlier books like The Divinity of Dogs and God Stories. Her most recent book is Rescuing Ladybugs, Inspirational Encounters with Animals That Change the World. Jennifer is an award-winning journalist who traveled the globe as a CNN correspondent for more than a decade. She is passionate about animals and their welfare, and she serves as a trustee, advisor, and spokesperson for charities around the world. And coming to us from Sydney, Australia, Jennifer Skiff, welcome to the program. Thanks, Victoria. And I I love what you're doing in the world to help others. And and I also have to say it right now because I might not get it in. I love Main Street Vegan, the book. It's fantastic. So thank you. And I'm joining you from actually Perth, Australia, on the complete other side of the country and the most remote city in the world. Wow. Mm. Well, we learn something every day. I just guessed <laughs> Sydney because this morning when you told me that we would be speaking at 4.30 a.m. your time, and then it said down below, um, Australia has 13 time zones. And I thought, well, look up the one where it's 4.30. <laughs> okay, so I, I assumed, which is never a good idea. So, Jennifer, tell us where it all started. How did you start being a writer, and how did you start being an animal person? I think it all, for me, it started in the home. I, I had a dog from the moment I was born. The, the first child was a, a boxer in our family. And so that's where, for me, I, had, I, I established my love for dogs. And, you know, as, as I progressed, it, it went on and on. And um, it, the, the big change came, of course, when I was in my... 30s and and witness something that I just couldn't look away from. What was this the bear? Yes, yes. So uh, having a love for animals, you know, is one thing when you have pets in the home and everything. But sometimes there are things in your life that you see that you can't look away from. And that happened for me when I was, I think, about 32, and I was in the country of Laos, and I was researching a book I wanted to do on the Vietnam War. And I was in a cultural park uh, and just walking down a path when my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, um, screamed out, Jenny, don't come down this path. And of course I did. And there were five bears and they were all in um, extreme confinement in cages that they had literally grown into. And they were surrounding a statue of Buddha. And I walked up to one of the bears and his paw was in his mouth and he was crying and there were tears coming down 
his, his face and he was rocking and we connected and we had, I, I would, I would definitely say a telepathic connection and I felt his suffering um, and it was extreme. And I, he, he pushed his paw out and he showed me his paw and basically said to me, look, look. And I looked down at his paw and there were red blisters all over his paw. So I asked my minder, my government minder who was with me, what, what's wrong with his paw? And he asked the zookeeper, if you will, and they, they, they communicated in Laotian and they came back to me and said, um, that's where people put their cigarettes out. Oh my God. And in that moment, um, well, John immediately said, Jenny, you can't save every animal in the world. It's time, you know, it's time to go. And I just, in that moment, I, I said, I, I can't look away from this. I, I cannot leave this situation. And, uh, so uh, the happy ending of this is that um, I asked my friends for help in both Australia and in the United States, and I live in both countries, and we all came together. I worked with the communist government and ended up building the first bear sanctuary in that country, and that bear made it into that sanctuary. It took about 24 months. And this book really is about a people like me, who had that moment and went on to, uh, unlike me, um, probably changed the world for a species of animal, um, and in doing so, changed the world for the rest of us. Well, that's why it is such a powerful, powerful book. And my listeners will know some of the people that you talk about in this book, the um, photographer Joanne MacArthur, um, Zoe Weil, the humane educator, um, and Jill Robinson, is that uh, Animals Asia? Yes, she's the yeah. co-founder of Animals Asia. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and Josh Ball, Peter Singer, who was my guest last week. <laughs> so yes. there, there are some familiar people, and, and there are some unfamiliar people as well who, who have gone out on a limb, either regularly this is what they do for their lives, or, as you say, one thing happened one time that changed everything. So... What's the difference that, as, that you see between these people and all of the many people who say, well, I love animals, but they didn't make it into your book? <laughs> What's the difference? I think that uh, what they saw was so confronting that they couldn't look away, number one, no, because most people don't see what's actually going on in the world. Um, and and that's, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I, w I wanted to enlighten and educate everybody on uh, the atrocities that are going on. So I think a lot of people witnessing might just do something about it. But there is a spiritual connection that happens when you allow yourself to connect with an animal. And these people all had that, that moment, that epiphany uh, and maybe they were enlightened at the time enough to to accept that. And because when you read the stories, you'll realize that everybody's just everybody. You know, we're we're all very similar. And uh, maybe they're just plain heroes. But I think it's it's that they were presented with a situation, and that situation they couldn't look away from. I 
simple, I guess. It's it's simple, and yet it's also complex because some people see suffering and move toward it, but more people see suffering and run from it. And as you know, I'm uh, beginning to get out in the world uh, as, as producer for this film, A Prayer for Compassion, and we've had some pre-screenings and everybody loves it to pieces. And the only criticism is, but why do there have to be those flashes of the cruelty to animals in, in the animal agriculture industry? And I mean, of course the answer is people who don't know that that's there and who still support it need to see that. And the rest of us can turn our heads or close our eyes, but it still has to get out there in the world. So what do you do with, with the seeing, with the knowing? What do I personally do with it? Or, yeah. or what do I suggest others do with it? <laughs> you can tell us both. <laughs> well, when I've seen too much, because I, I do represent a lot of organizations that are doing great in the world, and I think that you have to look. Um, and, and, then, and then you can advocate. Uh, and when I get too down personally, I, I crawl into bed with the dogs um, and I might go down for a, a couple of days. And I, I joked at, at one speech recently, but this is true. My husband will get me a cup of tea uh, in the morning and then pretty much leave me for the day. And I, I turn on uh, only funny movies. And then uh, in the afternoon, he comes home and will throw a bag, open the door and throw a bag of potato chips at me. And that will usually bring me out of my own <laughs> depression. And, you know, then, it, and then you just keep going or like you, you know, I do, I try to drag myself to a class of Bikram yoga and that usually, um, blows out the cobwebs if you will. But, um, there are some people who I guess are meant to look and there are some people who have a really difficult time and, and why wouldn't they, why wouldn't they with what's going on? Mm -hmm. And so I, I suggest always, there are so many ways to activate without looking, you know, um, you know, just by signing petitions, just by, um, not participating in the cruelty, you know, by the way that you eat, by not taking your children to events where animals are exploited and, um, and, you know, support it, supporting the charities that are actually very effective at creating change. So why do you think, Jennifer, it's so much easier for us to, to relate and empathize with the animals that we're familiar with, companion animals? It, it just seems like that's something of a leap to go from them to another kind of animal with our regard. That's a, that's a really simple question, actually, because uh, with, I think it's a simple answer. We're connecting with them on a daily basis. We're living with them. Um, if you uh, talk to people who have um, farm sanctuaries like Emma Haswell, she'll tell you that every single animal that is there uh, she connects with and has a personal connection with and can relate to. Uh, I've had, and, and you will see in this book, that that's what this book is about. People who have connections with other species of animals that, that weren't pets and how they, they really established relationships and they communicated with them and saw them and saw them differently, saw them for what they are, just mm -hmm. sentient beings. Mm -hmm. 
And I like the spiritual connection that you talked about when I first picked up your book and I, I, I never open a book to page one, <laughs> I always kind of let it fall open. And, and this is a, a decent sized book. Your book has uh, almost 300 pages and where it fell open for me was on the first page of the chapter called pigeon, because mm. I, I have this adoptive pigeon and I get to share with you first and all of my listeners that something wonderful happened this past weekend. Uh, my daughter is on tour performing and I got to see her out in Pennsylvania and rather nervously said, do you think that when you come back from your tour, that thunder, the blind pigeon, half blind pigeon could keep living with us? And she said, oh, sure. I wasn't looking to adopt a bird. It was just nobody wanted him because she does wildlife rehab. Mm. And I am so happy because living with this pigeon has opened up an entire new world for me. So that I think is, is why farm sanctuaries are so wonderful and places where we can go to experience animals of other species, because once you know them, everything's different. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank <laughs> most, you. Well, people, most people would say the opposite. Oh, my daughter is taking the pigeon home this weekend. <laughs> and uh, that's great. That's great news. Well, when, when you're back in the States, you'll have to come and visit and, and awesome. meet Thunder. So, so let's look at the average person out there. And we're not even going to go into veganism just yet, but just regular people who care about animals what are the, what can they do to improve the lives of animals? And maybe that will get into veganism. I would if I were answering the question, but I'm asking it. What do you tell the average person in terms of how to make life better for animals? Well, first of all, it's really important to watch movies like the one that you're, you're bringing out. It's important to watch documentaries. It's important to know what's going on. Because I really truly believe that, you know, when you open your heart to the truth, it changes you. It does, and er, er, all of your listeners will agree with that statement because they've had that they've had that moment, they had that epiphany. Unless you know, unless their parents brought them up a certain way, um, as far as eating goes, uh, I I just ask people um, also, you know, just don't participate in the cruelty. You know, know what's going on, and uh, I know that everything's a process, and that we're we're all changing throughout our lives it doesn't uh, you know we're not all fully enlightened from the moment that we're 30 you know it's just it's just a process and i i ask people also i i think that um you should act um when you see horrible things because you know as we say in the book um i found that um when you're on the path to do what's right you're never alone you think you're alone you know, in your community, you see something and you see it day after day. And I like to use the example of a dog that is chained. Um, you don't want to speak up. You don't want to have any interaction with a neighbor. You don't, you don't want to cause any troubles. But uh, when you do speak up, you will find that a lot of people have spoken up um, behind you. And, and you'll read about that in the book, you know, where I was in Indonesia and I witnessed um, uh, horrible things going on to monkeys and uh, wanted to create change at a hotel. And it wasn't until um, I, I realized that so many people had spoken up before me, 
And I was just the catalyst to create change for those monkeys and get them back into their natural habitat. So that's, that's my thought on that. Mm. Well, you, you've talked about a, a lot of countries in the developing world. So as these countries continue to develop, do you think that their attitudes and practices towards animals will change? Well, absolutely. Um, we, you know, we're, we are in the middle of the compassion movement right now, and it's, it's, a, it's a giant wave, and it's, it's doing great. Unfortunately, most of these countries are following what they consider with um, animal husbandry, best, pa- best practices from the United States. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, they've been doing that. Uh, I mean, I used to go up to uh, Bali, Indonesia, um, and still do, but I, I remember biking, you know, uh, down a volcano and seeing, um, you know, cattle in, in their, in their natural, not their natural habitat, but out in the fields, you know, and, and grazing. And the last time I went, I was heartbroken to see that the people had made, um, concrete platforms and they'd tied them to concrete platforms and the same thing um you know with chickens i have been up in laos and here here we have now factory farming in the u.s that's so prevalent it's teaching these countries in my opinion (laughs) the the wrong way to do it you know being in laos and all of a sudden i see lights on in at night which is to to keep up the production for these, um, for these chickens in these big, big houses. And I think that having said all that, now that's, that's what makes me sad because I spend a lot of time in other countries. The good news is that it, the movement is alive and well. It's just that creating change is very, very difficult, especially when you're dealing with uh, laws. And these laws affect uh, people's ability to feed their families. So, um, and those people who exploit animals are the ones who have the money to lobby against the rest of us. So it's tough out there. It's really tough. And that's why we need everybody on board to, to, to work. One thing my mom always used to say to me when I was a kid, um, when I was a, starting out as a reporter, you don't have to look at the accident to report on it. In other words, you don't have to sometimes see the worst of the worst, you know, to create the change or to spread the message. And I think that that remains with me today. I, I, I often think of that. Um, we need everybody on board. Everybody. Absolutely. And I love how thoroughly on board you are. I sense that another book like this is coming because in the back of your book, it says, have you had an encounter with an animal that changed your life? Please submit it for consideration <laughs> to Jennifer Skiff. That's S-K-I-F-F dot com. So are you collecting more stories? Yes, I'm collecting stories. You know, I just think uh, this book is, is very, very different than most. But I'm really interested in hearing from everybody else about that one moment. And I'm hearing I'm hearing a lot of stories about ladybugs and people rescuing ladybugs. Uh, but I would love to hear people's stories. Yes. Well, and, and I did want to ask you, why rescuing ladybugs? And, and also, for people who haven't read the book yet, you do something very 
interesting. And yet knowing that you are a journalist makes it seem, oh, of course, that's why she would do this. At the end of their anecdote, an anecdote, yes, um, you ask a series of questions. And the first one is, have you ever rescued a ladybug? So where did that come from? Well, the reason, the reason why I put that Q&A uh, at the end was it is because I had this title. And the publisher was like, love the title, but how are you going to weave it throughout the book? And I've always liked that uh, proof survey at the uh, back of Vanity Fair, you know, uh, where people were asked all these really different questions. And, and then you kind of connected with that person on a, on a different level. And so that is exactly how I decided to wait, uh, weave um, rescuing ladybugs into the whole into the whole book by asking people if they had you know had they ever and mm. uh, I always like I always like uh, Zoe Wiles response yes and worms from puddles too oh <laughs> that'll and, and a lot of people listening will put their hands up and say me too that's Aww. great well and, and then go ahead yeah go ahead well and oh. then the tight and then the title uh you asked that question and yes. the title is really about you know I found in traveling the world that just about everyone I've ever spoken to knows the story of how a ladybug, when a ladybug landed on you, you were to blow her away gently and make a wish and send her safely back home. And I, I think that that story when we were kids, you know, nourished our natural empathy and, and set us on a path to feel compassion for all animals. So, um, and we were being taught, you know, kindness for others has rewards. And I do believe that, too, uh, because I've experienced that. Um, and so this book is about people who have shown extraordinary compassion for other animals. And it seemed like the perfect name to me. That's a lovely name. I wanted to ask you about one of the other questions that you asked uh, everyone featured in the book. You asked about their diet. And some are vegan. Many are not. And, and there are answers like, uh, well, you know, I eat some uh, grass-fed beef and some free-range chicken. And my thought is, in reading these people's stories, that were they at a slaughterhouse, they would jump in to save that cow or that chicken. So mm -hmm. how, how can those of us who are vegan share with our comrades in this animal protection world why we believe that this is such an important step. I think we lead by example. Uh, I know that, that that is true for me, and I know that it's true for you. Uh, and that is probably the best way to do it, and um, to just go ahead and not engage in those um, silly conversations that a lot of people have. I, I, you know, in like your book, I think it's, when you were talking about people and the process, I think I think some people just have a process uh, that takes a while as they as they make those decisions. They see things, they learn things. Sometimes it just takes a documentary, which is what I I recommend your listeners. You know, just put a documentary in front of someone, ask them to sit there and watch it with you, because a lot of people won't <laughs> unless you're watching it with them. Um, listening to your podcast, there's so many things that, that people can do. And yes, um, I thought it was really important and interesting that everyone uh, in this book was at a, a, a different phase of their eating habits, if you will. 
Um, but I was really glad to see that there were a super lot of vegans who have become be vegan just from what they've experienced and what they've seen. Well, and it's so wonderful to read about people who bring this into their lifestyle, but then who also take it out there into the world and, and do on the ground work for animals like you and the people in your book and, and like our, our first guest, Damien. So everybody, this will all be in the show notes, but since you're listening now, let's tell you now the website is jenniferskiff.com. You can read about Jennifer's wonderful work and also send her your animal story. And she's at Jennifer Skiff on Twitter and on Instagram. The earlier books, uh, The Divinity of Dogs. And you have another one that I haven't read, but I need to, God Stories. Give, give me 20 seconds on God Stories. Uh, God Stories is, uh, is all faith, and it's about people who had an aha moment uh, that made them go, oh, oh, there really is something more. So not a... Uh, just spiritual epiphanies, really, uh, that and it didn't have to be about a God per se. It's just about that moment where they realized there was more. Oh, I love that. My favorite television show is God Friended Me. And my husband was asking me today, what's your second favorite television show? And I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe we go back to the 90s and say it was touched by an angel. Yeah. Sweet. It's a little bit like asking, who's your favorite guest? All my guests are my favorite, <laughs> as are all my listeners. God bless you, everybody, and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.